I think it really comes back to especially young chefs and young bartenders who want to try the latest trend and like they read a new cookbook and they want to try something like but is it consistently done can you do it every single time the same ticket times the same quality the same service whether or not you're full or you're empty and so consistency is a big thing that I really really harp on and a lot of people think that I'm just being pedantic but I'm like the consistency is what builds your clientele the consistency is what builds your bartending and so your house style has to be your house style Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingsell. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create hot-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out that kind of both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. We join forces to celebrate the reopening of society and the industry. As an industry, we need to find new ways to become even more innovative in the way we lead our people how we operate, how we grow our business, and how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. Today, we are very lucky to talk with a very experienced hospitality entrepreneur and consultant, Sean Soul, who is the founder of Soul Hospitality, host of the Post Shift podcast, author of a number of books, and he's also involved in a number of other hospitality businesses. We talk about the pandemic and Sean touched on the, some of the challenges around staffing and profit, etc. We already had for decades and the pandemic have now blown them up even more. Sean talks about how many people walk into the industry with a wrong mindset about how you're able to set up and scale your business in hospitality. He underlines that passion can only take you so far. You need to shift your mindset of focusing on being much more commercial with a long-term view to exit. Sean talks about the power of consistency, how this is so important for both the employee and customer experience in the long run, also for your business performance. We talk about the structure of the workforce and hospitality and what the issues will be as we reopen around the world. We dive into the importance of developing a number of revenue streams and listening to the customer. Sean makes a very good comparison with the car industry. We touched on Sean's journey in hospitality, his learnings, and he shares some great advice on how you can up your game. Along the way, we visit many other themes, how government support has been to the industry, restaurant adapting to serve customers at home with great restaurant meals, how you can implement open book management and share the numbers with the employees and get a win on that, how to be part of a mastermind group can boost your performance, and the importance of constantly developing yourself. Before you tune in, please sign up to our weekly newsletter on hospitalitymavericks.com. Packed with more Maverick insights and strategies and tools. Now, please grab notebook, pen and coffee and let's get started. Today, we're going to have a conversation about hospitality and that's a bit broad. But we're also going to be talking about how do you actually make it. There will be a bit of talk about how you make amazing cocktails. Probably everybody needs to drink once in a while in the moment. And of course, in healthy and regular measures. And and for this, you know, I have a fellow podcaster invited today. So we have Sean that has joined us all the way from Canada. It's early morning in Canada. And uh, welcome to the the show, Sean. I really looked forward to this conversation because it's always interesting talking with uh, another hospitality podcaster because I know from my own experience that we touch so many people and we listen to so many people. So there's so much knowledge in that 
mind of you all we need to share with the world. And therefore, I'm really looking forward to this because you have listened to probably hundreds of people and you talk with people every day as you you do your podcast as well. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. It's uh, it's it's very rare that I get to be put on someone else's podcast. So I'm always interested and always looking forward to having chats about uh having a different sort of dynamic yeah and then we talked a lot about what what should the core focus be on, on on this conversation today and then we said well it's all all about hospitality and in a way it's as i see it's a way about your entrepreneurial journey as well because the interesting thing is that you're not only a podcaster you're also an operator at heart and you you run your business but there's nobody better to present themselves than, than you so how how would you uh, pitch yourself in an elevator so people know what you're doing besides podcasting, which we already made clear? I always say I'm a bartender first and a hospitality entrepreneur second. Um, bartending will always be my passion. I still bartend a couple of nights a week at the bar that I run. Um, and then hospitality entrepreneurship is what I do for the other 80 hours a week. And so I run five different companies, all hospitality centric. Uh, I have three different partners in these different companies. And so I, I partner with the right people to sort of sort of push my goals and push the uh, the the sort of agenda that I want to push in each individual venture. And so it seems a little ridiculous that I have so many endeavors and so many side projects, but they all sort of work in unison, but separately at the same time. Yeah, and I guess that's uh, again in hospitality because uh, that's our challenge. Because uh, I'm the same. I have you know these number of everything stems from a, a food point of view, but there's different projects going on. But it's about cho- choosing the right people to to make it happen. And if you don't do that, it's not going to work. But also, you need to de-risk your your proposition, even though it's hard to de-risk anything in a moment in, in hospitality, come back to that. But tell us a bit more about uh, what are these businesses? And uh, there's a bar, there's a, there's a podcast, a media company. Uh, and then the, uh, and then there's also these, uh, you know, great training programs you do to optimize bars and stuff like that. But what, what else are you involved in? If you just have to describe very shortly what these businesses do and what they're passionate about. So yeah, like my main company is SHC. It's my consulting firm. I do design and construction and training and a little HR and hiring and that sort of thing. Um, during COVID, I, did, I started a new company, but I have a, a design and creative house with a very talented graphic designer a friend of mine who uh, we do branding and design for distilleries, wineries, restaurants. Um, I have my media and marketing company, which really looks into online marketing and, and creative. I do a lot of, I'm the creative director for that. So I do a lot of of the social media marketing and social media content creation. Um, I have a little uh, craft spirits uh, distribution agency here on the island where we take craft distilleries from Vancouver, uh, BC, which is about eight distilleries in the province and uh, distribute a couple of the smaller distilleries here on the island. Uh, I have my own online bar store, which sort of does all drop shipping and stuff out of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and yeah, I have a couple of passion projects and of course the podcast on the side. So I, I, I saw, I see deficiencies in the industry, especially here and on the West coast of Canada. And that's sort of where it leads me to, if I see something that I've, or I'm talking to someone, like you said, you talk to a lot of people, you talk to someone, they're like, yeah, we can't do such and such. I'm like, oh, if you can't do such and such, it means that I can probably do such and such. And I'm going to do such and such for you. It's interesting. What what uh, was the uh, thing you saw locally in your market? Uh, because uh, I agree, there was already pre-pandemic a number of um, challenges within uh, our industry, 
uh, on a global level. But what what did you see locally that was like missing that you thought, okay, I need to do something about this. I need to to, to fix this. I think it's always those it's always those little things, and and you're in the same sphere, so like it's always those little things that that restaurant that doesn't have the good service or that restaurant that has super high turnover, and uh, I think the pandemic sort of pulled back the curtain a little bit on that, but like it's always that we're doing fine. This is the way we've always done it. That sort of mentality in the hospitality industry has always sort of been that. So it's it's an uphill battle, but it's those deficiencies micro or macro in our industry that I sort of try and target. Um, But just restaurant culture is still such a very interesting animal to try and sort of tackle um, pre and post pandemic, because uh, as we were talking about off camera, like uh, we, we have the staffing issues and stuff like that. We had these beforehand. They're just going to get exasperated during, during uh, this sort of recovery period. Yeah, and it's interesting. Let's uh, touch a bit on on the staffing bit because uh, you are originally from uh, you're not from Canada. You're from Australia, and uh, Australia has. Uh, I guess they're not in lockdown. There's some maybe local lockdown still happening, but in a way, they came back over the Christmas period, and uh, very quickly it was evident that one of the the challenge was not customers. It was having staff to serve the customers. That was actually a massive talent gap and actually just arms and hand feet to serve the customers yeah i think i think canada and north america are a little bit different um because we do have that more local focused staffing pool whereas like the uk and and australia are very heavily dependent on immigrant workers and 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 that sort of thing in the way of like travelers and and people from outside the country to sort of fill those spots um the the biggest thing i've found with canada especially is that um, I've been sort of preaching this from, from the very get-go with staff that there's been a lot of free training and a lot of people, a lot of organizations have given out free courses and that sort of stuff. So I think staffing isn't going to be a, as much of an issue in Canada as in other parts of the world. But that being said, the talent pool is going to be very deep and very wide. And so I've been sort of preaching to a lot of these younger industry people that if you're not sort of doing stuff to better yourself during this time when there's free courses and stuff once the doors reopen and resumes start flowing again there's going to be a huge talent pool for people to pick from and it's going to really sort of level out the the sort of quality of uh talent that we have to to choose from um but that being said i still think there's going to be a huge percentage of the market is not going to be coming back to work they're going to go off and get their side hustles or be happy working at the jobs that they got at wineries and distilleries and and QSRs and stuff like that. So it's it's to be said. I think we've got. I don't think we're going to have a staffing issue like the way you guys are having one. But I think that the the staffing the staffing pool is going to be very deep and wide. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you you touch on they gone and got all the jobs because they need an income. And uh, I know for for the fact some some have traveled back to their the especially European countries. They're from Spain, Italy, but also they gone and work for. Other type of employer uh, employers, e-commerce businesses, where they actually got a, a really good job, where it means that suddenly I'm working maybe from seven in the morning to two in the afternoon. Uh, I'm paid the same uh, and uh, I'm not having this pressure because, of course, they still have to work hard, but it's still it's, it's, it's a very different pressure than uh, 
a hospitality shift where the thing goes south. It's really, it's really tough to get it back up again. So it's interesting, especially Chef, one of my friends, he's a very senior in a pop chain, and he said that like um, they're really scared about if they will have enough chefs to run their kitchens uh, as they come back. They have uh, 23 units dotted across the, the southern part of the UK. And he can really see that's that's going to be their big challenge again, especially chef, because they just found out there's, a, there's an easier way to have family and a, an okay job. I'm still passionate about food, but I'll do it as a side hustle, not as my main job. And I think, like I said, I think the industry's had the, the curtain pulled back and the smoke and mirrors have sort of been like taken away. The industry is hard. Like, let's just put that out there. The industry in any facet, whether you're a busser or dishwasher, it's passion driven. Um, and I think with COVID and everything, we've seen pubs and restaurants that have been around for 90 years closing down because of the the pandemic. That's a big deal. Like a place with so much brand equity, like when a lot of people get into the restaurant game, they think that, oh, after five years, I'll have my loan paid off. I'll have all my equipment paid off. My startup costs are all paid off. I'll be on easy street then. I'll be making money. And then you see these 90-year-old pubs and restaurants and, and bars shutting down. You're like, well, brand equity and and this sort of mystique and romance of having this sort of brand and the the cash flow doesn't actually really exist it's it's kind of a, a smoke and mirror so i think pat i think a lot of people have stopped and gone yeah passion gets you so far but i don't have work-life balance i i work till two o'clock in the morning the money is relatively good but really balancing out that like you have one day off a week and you're sleeping the whole day because you're catching up on the six day week you just had so i think there's going to be a big change in that and and passion and business for just our entry level staff is going to be a much bigger a much bigger thing coming back yeah and it's so interesting even uh, pre-pandemic i had this conversation uh, and as you know it's just the the curtain was pulled apart it's like you know profitability you know running it as a business not a passion it's important to have passion to drive that business but if you don't run it as a business uh, and you are not on the business but in the business it will fail inevitably because you will run out of energy at some point. And I think that's the typical what you see many times, especially independent restaurants, but also when as they grow, they didn't get the, the model right. And maybe restaurants is not always built to expand to a crazy numbers. There are very few concepts that work really well. There's a reason why QSR is probably one of the best performing financially and sometimes all the most unloved brands like mcdonald's uh, kfc and domino's it's because it's it's not focusing on maybe so much they are passionate maybe about what the, the quality they deliver but it's passionate about running a business um and i think that's the key thing you have to remember it's a business at the end of the day and and it should pay your pension not only your uh, day-to-day uh, bills oh 100 we must be the only industry in the world where well-paid lawyers and stockbrokers and stuff give up their corporate jobs and invest in a restaurant <laughs> like it doesn't like if they looked at restauranting as the way that they looked at their whole the rest of their career on paper they shouldn't do that why would you go from like with the only industry where people go oh, i'm gonna give up my my law practice and go open a restaurant that makes no sense whatsoever most of the time. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and actually, you know, and it's not not only uh, it's it's also people that spend their whole career in, in hospitality. They, they 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 run it on passion and not on business acronym, as I call it. Uh, Sean, on your uh, when I uh, prepared for this conversation, there were on your website there's a there's a quote where you say consistency builds culture, not creativity. 
And uh, can you explain what you mean with that? Because I couldn't agree more. I would say this one's this one's interesting. This one I really beat into um, young bar managers and young restaurateurs and chefs that are coming into it. Um, the reason why McDonald's is so popular is that anywhere you go, anywhere in the world, you know that the Big Mac is going to taste like a Big Mac. You know, so it's this consistency of doing something over and over and over again. I'm very, 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 very particular about like how drinks and food is presented, like all these things, because a consumer knows that whether it be consciously or subconsciously, when something comes out in a different glass or a different garnish or different plating, every time they come in, that that's not, that's chaos in their head. And so I live by this and I, I, I think it really comes back to especially young chefs and young bartenders who want to try the latest trend and like they read a new cookbook and they want to try something like, but is it consistently done? Can you do it every single time? The same ticket times, the same quality, the same service, whether or not you're full or you're empty. And so consistency is a big thing that I need. I really, really harp on. And a lot of people think that I'm just being pedantic, but I'm like, the consistency is what builds your clientele. It's the consistency is what builds your bartending. And so your house style has to be your house style. I totally agree with you. And there's so many people that don't uh, really, when you go into a restaurant or any kind of business, understand that's actually your job is to systemize things so you can actually spend time on developing the future. And it's not just so you can uh, do that, but also that's the way you make profit. Because that's what people want. They want the employee want the consistent experience when they get to work, but also the customers you say want. To, and that was one of the biggest thing I saw when I left McDonald's and came out to the world of consulting as well was that, wow, that's that's what they that's what they master, and there's such a gap between what they master and there's others straight behind them. But then we take them, the KFC, the Domino's, the, the QSR sector is very good at consistency because they are a bit more like a sales offer than a production kitchen on the back. Um, but again, I think lots of businesses, uh, not only in hospitality, really the power of consistency and what that does to you know your culture when you have that, the discipline. And uh, there's a great book I always refer to when I talk consistently, Good to Great. There's these businesses that just improve a little bit every year but in the end, their return on investment on the stock exchange is probably 10 to 20 times better than the one that changed direction all the time and don't get consistency in their behavior. So, yeah, so I just had to ask you that question because that's one of my things as well. Like, you know, how do you get consistency in what you do? And what is it that you do week after week or day after day um, from closing to opening list and so on? I think that's really, really well, well put, Sean. What is um what is the typical uh, challenges you see right now as you go out and work with people? What is it that's going on out there? Because also you talk with people on your podcast. What are the the, the biggest challenges for for owners, operators, CEOs of their businesses uh, right now? On the large scale, I think it's the the government's complete um, misunderstanding, and I don't want to say ignorance because that's a little bit too harsh, but I think complete misunderstanding on how big the hospitality industry is. I really think we're one of the only industries, probably retail maybe would be close, but I think hospitality is more so where we have like a 17, 18 year old kid who's going to university or college who works the dish pit once a week. And then we've got the the 45 year old server who's who works the 50 hour shifts, 50 hour weeks with uh, things. So we have this massive spread of different employees. And I think the government's misunderstanding of just 
how many people we employ, just how much money we bring in um, is very difficult. And I still don't think they understand the inner workings of the industry in the way of like how slim our profit margins are at the end. We're not the airlines. We're not the oil industry. We're not car manufacturing where we bring in more money than those, but we take home way less than any of those those sectors. So I think on the macro, this government misunderstandings where we're having issues with uh, loans to support small business, um, money towards helping staff that are furloughed right now. These are the sort of things like these are I, I'm I'm dealing with this in Canada a lot um, because to get government um, help, you only can you can't work so many hours and so much money can, can't come in your bank. But a lot of these people who were servers and bartenders are now doing takeout windows. You know, so they're doing takeout windows with zero tips, which tip culture is a massive thing still in North America. On the macro, I think it's the government's misunderstanding of our industry, which is a big thing. On the micro venue to venue, um, I, I still think there's a lot of people that are hung up on the way we used to do things. And, and we've mentioned it a couple of times during this already, like our industry was fundamentally broken as overall before COVID, you know, like slim profit margins, the passion versus business, staffing, all these sort of things. So why do we romance something that's so old? We're very, we're very slow to adapt to new technologies and new um, opportunities and revenue streams and stuff like that. I've had multiple conversations with restaurateurs who don't believe takeout as part of their brand. And I'm like, your, your brand doesn't exist the way it did anymore. Like March 20, by March 2020, your brand stopped existing and now it is something else. So you need to evolve to being this new brand. Um, so on the macro, I think it's the government, but on the micro, I think there's a lot of restaurateurs out there that still romance the old days and um, don't want to adapt. And I saw a ton of restaurants do takeout while lockdowns are on. And as soon as lockdowns finished and they opened up in-room dining again, stop doing takeout. I'm like, but this is a revenue stream. This is a legitimate revenue stream and your consumer, your guest, wants the convenience of having your food at home. And this has been sped up probably two to five years faster than what we expected, but this is what's happening. And you've got to listen to your consumer. And I think there's still a little bit of um, dichotomy between what the restaurateur wants to put out there and their vision, their mission and everything, and what is actually happening with their guest and their consumer on the backside of that. And those people have changed, so you need to change with it. Do you think that uh, there's a paradigm in, in many's mind or mindset that actually we know better as an industry? Would you want as a consumer, if you look at many other industries that's actually gone through, a, a, you call it digitalization, I just call it the way we do things. It doesn't matter if it's digital or not. It's the way we think about our customers. You, you take media business and they really had to adapt. Banking had to adapt and they had to go out to understand the customers, uh, what they want, as you say, like the customers want the convenience. And why wouldn't you have more than one revenue stream? Any any great business model have minimum three revenue streams to to de-risk its situation. Yeah, I think there is still some of some of that, and I think the car industry is the probably the perfect sort of example of. You can see the car companies that were so caught up in themselves that they kept pointing out cars that they thought their consumers wanted and they're very far behind say the 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 Japanese car makers and like the Southeast Asian car makers who really listened to where the consumer and where the the consumer sort of behavior was going and they changed their business model to do that and now the Hyundai's and the Kia's and all this sort of stuff have have stepped up whereas a lot of your North American car makers have sort of fallen behind and they're just starting to catch up now and I think we do, and I'd, I'm not saying that we should disregard that because there is always that sort of like, 
I want to bring X style of food or X style of experience to the guest. And if the guest loves it, great. If they don't, they don't. I just think there's going to be a, a happy balance. And I agree with you. There's a paradigm between what the customer is wanting and what we need to do right now to survive. Because you can keep pushing your passion, but if your passion is not keeping the lights on, then you need to figure out how to keep your lights on right now. I think it's interesting uh, that thing sometimes uh, I've asked people I work with, clients, uh, CEOs or owners, I said, you've just been punched in the face three times, but you continue doing the same thing because you are inevitably believing that, that the world wants this, this menu, this setup, these kind of things. Maybe you just need to listen to that because either your revenue is telling you or the, the lack of customer is telling you you need to change something. But we again, we wake up every day, we, we do the same checklist, we open the same way, or we go back, as you said, when the, the, the lockdown is lifted and cancel revenue streams. Uh, those actually legitimate revenue streams, you say. And actually, I think one of the things that actually often happens, and I don't know if you can confirm that, I know you talked about this before, nobody looks at data. It's all gut feel decisions often made. And I think that still hangs in the air, even though we are going through a pandemic where, you know, you really need to focusing on what matter most. And you can only do that by measuring it in some kind of way. There's a Mike Tyson quote. There's like, everybody has the best laid plans until you get into the ring and get punched in the face. Um, and I think that that is exactly what we do every day. We have the best laid plans when we wake up in the morning. We know how it's going to be. Um, but I do agree. There's still a lot of, there's not a lot of data crunching. Like I, I talk to my staff a lot on a daily to weekly and to monthly basis about how many covers we did, what our per head spend was. I have my targets and I share that with them. Um, right now within room dining, uh, the hard thing is, is that um, you don't, you can't really do much to get more bodies through the door because the market is just the way it is right now. So my big focus right now is how much is every seat spending what is my per head spend like that is a massive thing for me right now because with the way that our government's played out our restrictions and stuff it's perpetually valentine's day it's perpetually just two tops so you're full and every single table's full but it's two top two top two top two top there's no fours there's no fives there's no sixes um so this is perpetual valentine's day every weekend and uh but i said to the team like this is the per head spend i'd like to target this is where I think is our sweet spot. I think we can do this. So let's figure out how to make that work so that every single person that we get through the door is maximized as much as possible. But yeah, you start talking about break-even points and what's your cover count and how many seats do you have and what's your turnover rate and all sorts of stuff. And the glazed eye is just sort of like really glaze over really quickly. And you're like, okay, so you don't know what your break-even point for your restaurant is on, is on a daily and weekly basis. As you just uh, explained, if you actually distill that down to the staff, then they have something to work with. They have a very specific key result they can work to. So you made very clear about where success, how success look in the current environment. So you've been very clear as a leader where the focus should be. Uh, and you give them permission to operate within in that. That's what I hear. And you involve them in that solution because, you know, you as the owner or leader, you maybe have an idea about where 20% of that solution is, but the 80%, which is really the important bit, it's maybe your staff that's going to find out by actually working with that uh, that uh, objective. 100%. And I think this is an overall thing for the whole industry. I think we need to be more transparent with what we do. I think, as you were saying about like people starting to really pay attention to the the lockdown crisis in the UK for pubs and restaurants and stuff like that. That's what we really need because 
as you as we've said a couple of times already, like we have these meetings with our accountant or the chef is angry or the toilet's plugged, but then service starts and we're like, let's get this done. And that's what we do. We, we put our smiley face on, we hit the floor and we're touching tables and kissing babies and, and doing that sort of stuff. So I think there needs to be transparency within the organization and out of the organization as well, especially right now, like a lot of chefs have come out and said like, this is really hurting our industry and, and being that really raw transparency to show that our industry isn't all glamour and and fun lights and and serving great food and that sort of thing and gain awards it really is a difficult industry to be in um, but i still think that we need to be very honest with our staff because it brings breeds ownership it sort of shows them like you don't need to get so deep into like whether or not we made profit or loss or anything like that but i think there's there's certain metrics that you can really give your staff to empower them and push them forward to the same goal that you're chasing yeah, you have a the Zimmerman a deli business in the in in the US uh, as well, where they have a principle called open book management, and they lay everything out. The whole P and L is laid out, and actually everybody has a responsibility on that P and L. And funny enough, it's not the owners that has a responsibility; they have a responsibility that the open book management practice is done. And like what they see, they are very profitable compared to their competitors. I can't remember. I think it was between 14 and 20% on the bottom line. Wow. Uh, pre-pandemic, I saw. And and again, that's that's the extreme version of it. And you can't start with that. They all didn't start there. But again, that it's so powerful. I've seen that myself when I practice that again. You know, Don't hide the numbers because you can't improve them yourself. You need people to help. That's that. And actually, people need to have insights into how bad it is. You know, how many times I haven't seen people where the 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 business closed, and they say, "How did that happen? We we're busy every evening, but yeah, you didn't make make enough sale, or you just missed five dollars on each sale to be profitable." Um, so it's just, it's just so interesting that we are sometimes so entitled. I've been there myself, where you hold that. You know, you don't want to show that because you think you think it reflects you. No, it actually reflects the team, and when the team knows they're not performing. Then they do something about it. Uh, even if you don't give the direction, they will do something about it. That's a, or they will say, oh, "I can't bother," and that's the best thing that can happen. Then, but it's interesting what you said. I want to touch back on the uh, the government thing because I think that's a global thing. Do you think that, you know, because there has been a lot of uh, you know people being out and talking on behalf of the industry association and so on. Do you think we have been pre-pandemic, we were too proud and too much elite soldier about it, that we just we just moved on with it? We didn't actually start raising these questions before, and maybe we had a responsibility to fix our own businesses, but also saying that this actually is an industry that employs a lot of people, but likely the, the condition we have from a national point of view is really poor. Support to education, support to infrastructure, because there's there's branded restaurants and hotel chains, which is probably a small majority of the total market, because the restaurant market is still primarily independent run businesses. But do you think actually we've just been too proud and too much elite soldier about how we approach things? Is that a a mindset that can be a a blocker? I, I think it's a, a few of those things. I think again it. We, we have always been proud and we've always sort of kept, we've kept our cards close to our chests. Um, I think another thing is that I think, I feel like we're a little disorganized. We're always busy and we're always in the business of being busy. Um, there's always something going on in a restaurant. And so I think we're a little disorganized. Like you, you look at lobbying groups and the bigger industries, they've got one association or maybe two associations that are talking to the government directly. Whereas we sort of have this sort of, 
big organizations, small organizations, you've got big hotels, you've got small hotels. I don't think there's an industry in the whole hospitality sphere that has so such a massive spread of SMEs and big guys. Like you talk about the oil, in, we talked about the oil industry and the car industry because they get bailed out quite a lot. Like those those guys get bailed out a lot. We bring as much every money time. <laughs> we bring in as much money, if not more money, to the GDP every year as the hospitality industry. But we have so there's, there's no there's no SME oil companies or car companies. You know, like we're not talking about the 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 small mom and pop restaurant on the corner to a multinational hotel. So we've got this massive spread of uh, organizations. The small guys don't really want to get involved because they're so so small. The big guys have a lot of their own agenda as well. And then you've got this massive cut right in the middle of independent restaurants and and maybe some bigger QSRs that they all have their own agendas too. And so I think that's always the hard thing too. I think there's a little, a little bit of infighting in the hospitality industry where the small guys don't want to deal with, like don't, don't want to be at the same table with the big guys. The big guys don't see the, the need to support the small guys, but we're all in the same ecosystem. And I think that's sort of been very made aware during the COVID that we're all in the same ecosystem and we all feed each other in some way, shape or form. If we don't have tourists coming to town, your little independent restaurant is probably not going to have a whole bunch of guests. You know, food, tourism, you, your restaurant may win an award and bring a whole pe- bunch of people to town. But if the hotel's shut, you don't have anywhere to put them. And so I think the ecosystem of hospitality has been spread out a lot more during COVID. But I think it, it, com- it does come down sometimes that there's a lot of voices. You know, instead of it being one big Rottweiler barking at the government, it's a whole bunch of chihuahuas. And so... I think that's where sometimes the government misunderstands it because they get all these different voices. You get the medium-sized restaurants, you get the big hotels. And so I think there needs to be some unification and just to drop all the ego and the rubbish that comes around it too. Like everybody's just trying to survive right now. If any, if there's any time for us all to combine, all sit at a table together, the mom and pop shop, the the independent entrepreneur who's opened a restaurant who was a chef for a while the big hotels it's it's now to give that unified voice to the government because if we don't we're just going to we're just going to keep turning our wheels and if this happens again or a lockdown happens in two three years it's going to be the exact same story and we're going to have the exact same conversation so right now is a time to unify and really sit down the table and just just stop and take a breath and listen to everybody's point of view because the big guys are hurting. The big hotels are hurting just as much as your little restaurant. You know, it, I know that there's been big loans and stuff like that, but some hotels have had twenty percent occupancy for the whole year, and that's a that's a. And there's no high season. There's no low season. It's basically been low season for fifteen months. And while there's tons of capital behind those restaurant uh, behind those hotels, that is getting chipped away very, very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, and uh, your pocket is only as deep as your pockets are, no matter if you're large or, or small. But I, th- I think one of the interesting things you said there as well was um, like masterminding. That's almost you said, like learn from each other and learn together and actually try to come together and solve the problems. And that's uh, something I've seen uh, in many other industries when I've been involved in them, like the ability to learn and mastermind, something like Francis in McDonald's was very good at. They had their mastermind groups where they learned from each other, even, you know, and they were a mixture of some of them operated 10 restaurants and some of them operated one, but exactly what they could learn from each other on that journey, because that's saving the guy to run, run restaurant to find out that how he could save money by changing to LED light bulbs. It's a great example. 
And then uh, by telling that story and sharing that and the guy listening, okay, well, I could do that as a mass saving. It's a very practical example here. But again, it's again about actually coming together. It doesn't matter how big you are. You can learn something from everyone. Uh, and I think, you know, the people that have spent the time in lockdown learning, as you said earlier, they're the ones um, that's going to be ready for, for the future. They may be not knowing what, why they're learning this now, but suddenly they're going to be in a situation where they can apply this. Uh, and it's something I tried to apply myself. And I know we talked about as well, trying to take some training or something you wouldn't do normally because you have the time or you just need to, you know, you need to learn something new to, to survive in the, in the new now. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. There's definitely something about coming together uh, as one voice as, as a global challenge, as I see it, uh, because I think uh, you're right. Our industry has been left behind. Um, uh, in many ways, because people don't understand how complex it is. Um, they, they just think uh, any restaurants will get help to survive. There is, there is support, but that's, that's for many nothing. What is, a, if you take your own career as an entrepreneur, we go over there, go away from the, the big hospitality and uh, what we think that, that could be different and better. What, what is uh, the things that you as an entrepreneur, you know, uh, when you started out in hospitality, would you really have liked to know something that you know today? Would you actually have started out in hospitality with the knowledge you have today and stayed? So I, I grew up, I grew up in the country and worked for my family business. We were landscaping and and turf delivery and stuff like that. And I left home and I got a job in a hotel as like the handyman gardener. Um, I never had any food and beverage background before that. Like I'm the eldest of six, and my mother was a, a cook in the way that feeding six kids all growing up um cooks like it was very like big meals lots of mashed potatoes <laughs> lots of overcooked steak that sort of thing um so me growing up in the food and beverage sector just didn't exist it just it wasn't something we did. couldn't go out to restaurants we lived in the in really in the in the country um i'm i don't look back and, and think that the hospitality industry uh wouldn't be something i got into i absolutely love my job i'm 100 grateful um to have the opportunity to be in this industry um looking back i probably would have done more training early on like i i'm sort of playing not playing catch up i'm always trying to better myself i have a rule like be better the day the, the day you wake up than you were the day before and so i'm just constantly trying to train myself i went back to college a couple of years ago to get my advanced diploma in hospitality and tourism management which a lot of people are like but why and i learned a ton and and learned some stuff um but for me, I think uh, there's nothing that I would have would have done different. I'm just so happy, and the direction I've t been in, and the places I've worked, I've worked in everything from dive bars to neighborhood joints and everything in between. There's absolutely nothing I wouldn't have done. I think everything happens serendipitously, and I've I've tried to look back a couple of times and reflect on my career, and I'm like, you know what, everything happens for a reason. I know it's really cliche and, and romantic and that sort of thing, but like it really has been serendipitous like to like every like junket trip to absolutely everything has been serendipitous in my career. And I'm just grateful for the fact that even after COVID, COVID, don't get me wrong, and I'm sure you feel the same way as an entrepreneur, you have your good days and your bad days. It's just the way that it is. I think hospitality entrepreneurship, something I've been sort of saying a bit more is I think it's another layer of hardship when it comes to hospitality entrepreneurship in comparison to entrepreneurs in the tech industry or cannabis or something like that. Um, 
but I have my good days and my bad days. But as long as the good days outweigh the the bad days, it is. It's just a. It's a, always a grind, and I just remind myself that this has always been my way. Like the hustle and the grind has been ingrained in me since I was 16, 17 years old. So there's days where I'm like, oh man, I wish this could just be a little bit easier, like just a smidge easier just to get that win. But then I'm like, dude, this is what you've been doing for 22 years. Like this is just the nature of the beast. It doesn't really matter whether it's opening a bar and, and running a bar program that wins awards or starting a new company and dealing with partners and doing that sort of stuff. So it is just the same thing, just tweaked a little bit. I'm thinking then, okay, within that journey, you know, there's probably a lot of success as well you learn from. What what has been your um, biggest failure? Because I often believe that you you learn most from failures. Uh, I opened a couple. I, I opened my first restaurant in 2013 called Little Jumbo, and I, I partnered up with a couple of people and we we did the full corporate board thing. But 18 months later, I started having a bit of a fallout. Um, and I, I wouldn't, it was a learning experience, obviously. Um, I do see it as one of my biggest failures um, because I look back and I think that I probably could have dealt with it better, dealing with my shareholders and stuff like that, um, setting up expectations correctly. There's just a lot of stuff that I probably could have done better, not compromised as much as I did in the beginning. Like, you you know, you sort of, you're opening your first restaurant and that's what your, your goal is. So you start compromising here and compromising there and compromising there. So when it came time for this sort of the separation, I really didn't have any cards on the table. And so I had to walk away and it took me a really long time to get over that, like a very, very long time. Um, but then I sort of look at it and I see where my career went after that. And there's all these interesting like little pinpoints where you see something happen. And my part, ex-partner put me through the ringer for that. He still does to this day. Like there's still, it, the little jumbo is still open. He still like puts the knife in every now and then. And I just push through it. And so th- that, that failure um, led to really me consulting. I've opened 13 bars and restaurants across the world in like seven years. Um, my last three were in Singapore in 2019. Um, but there's these little things that I'm like, if I hadn't done that, then that wouldn't have happened. You know, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have written my second book. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gone to Singapore for six months. So I think I would say Little Jumbo was my biggest failure, but it was also my biggest uh, my biggest learning moment as well. We didn't even touch that in the beginning, but the like you, you said, like you wouldn't have written your books as well if you didn't fail. And I think that's often when you have that failure, you can you can actually you can then express it to the to the world in a different way, and you've reflected on. Did you use the books like reflection on that and actually manifesting a bit what you'd learned, or you already had always had that dream of becoming? Coming a writer, I have that dream. I haven't got to the book yet. I'm I'm writing every day, but I'm not got there. And so one day I've been told you will you will you will be there and you will know exactly. So I'm just writing 50 minutes every day to 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 be better at that. But is that like the way you in a way reflected and dealt with that failure that was big at that time? I think between the books and the podcast, I think the books the the, the books made me stop and realize just how fortunate I was and look at the whole culture that I'm a part of, that I'm a little, a little speck in a, in a big cocktail culture of, of uh, Canada. Um, the podcast I think is definitely the more, more cathartic sort of moment. The podcast really does allow me to um, express certain things um, that are in my head or I, I get gut punched. And so I do a, a, a episode about negativity and stuff like that. And then talking to people. So I think 
yeah, the failure does sort of it opened me up, and I I live by sort of rules like if someone if someone says something negative or pushes you to to be like feel less of yourself then to try and be better so so much better than they expect you that eventually they have to come ask you for help and so that's the kind of way i look at it is like i try and push myself as hard as i can so that naysayers eventually have to come to me and go hey i'm opening up a new restaurant can you come help me <laughs> and so um it does it does push me to be the best i can possibly be one of the things you said before as well, I noticed you said uh, when you opened the restaurant in 2013 and then 18 months after that, don't walk away. Actually, a lot of people don't take that reflection. They just move on to the next thing and do the same mistake because actually often we don't spend enough time on an energy on the before we open. We just get open or we don't spend enough time on the business idea really to understand it and test it. We just do it. But then you maybe wasted a lot of time, and uh, that's actually often where the failure starts. Exactly because you didn't spend that time. I'm not saying you should procrastinate. That's a different thing. But spend the time you need to think the right thoughts and actually get in sync with these people. If you have to involve other people with as well, because that's my experience with the people I work with. Actually, the most successful project actually taking a bit longer to get started, but actually we spend a longer time of getting in sync as individual people but also around the business model and actually getting all our views heard in a way and i think that's where i i it was such i had a singular a singular thought and a singular goal and push that i didn't and i was i was young i call i say i was young i was like 33 then uh, 32 when we first opened i was like i wanted to get this place open i knew exactly what i wanted i had the name and the concept for 10 years before this and I didn't take into account the expectations and the needs of the people who put money into the into the venture, which again it goes back to that passion versus business. Like, oh, my passion will take me f- like way further than that the, the money that they put in. And so, I, I look back and I, I know how to deal with people now in the way of outside the industry having that sort of like romantic look on restaurants, and then they're going to drop coin into it, and you're just like, okay, well, listen. This is the way it's really going to be. You're going to have the X, you're going to have Y. There's going to be a lot of hurdles. There's going to be slow months, but you've got to sort of push through it and you've got to understand that it's going to take time. Yeah, and uh, one of the most important thing is that no matter how good a plan you have, it probably will never go according to that plan, but it will be in a better place that you had a plan and had some consideration because then you can easily uh, agile. Being agile is so famous to say in a moment to change direction because that's the, the reality. It never, never goes to plan, but uh, you'll probably either hit hit a bit below or even worse, very far below what you expected. Um, good. So uh, one of the things I was thinking about as well, because I guess that when you, you were not born into the industry like one of myself, who inspired you on that journey? There's always a situation that makes you stay in something and think, okay, well, this is the thing I need to, especially as a young person. Okay, here's my calling. This is what I need. But who inspired you for that? Or was it an individual or a situation? And who else inspired you in your in your in your time as an entrepreneur? I've had I've had a lot of people. Like when I first started out, um, my food and beverage director at the hotel that I was the handyman, I was like, Do you have black and whites? I'm short of stuff, maybe do you want to work a wedding? And so I worked the wedding and the wedding was awesome and the the the, the bride and the bridesmaids and the groom and everything we were dancing on the thing, which you know is not really what I would say in any young person who works in a banquet hall to dance with the the bridal party, but I didn't know any different. 
And so I just had fun and it was that hook of fun that I sort of started. Um, and then going through, I've been fortunate enough to have some really fantastic uh, mentors um, throughout my career. Philip Duff out of New York, uh, he owns Old Duff Geneva. Um, he was a big catalyst in that sort of big step from where I was based here in Victoria to sort of like showing me a bigger world of like what can actually happen in your career as a as just a bartender. Um, I think my dad and my mom have always been a massive influence on me. They, my dad was very similar to me, always had like lots of jobs and, and bounced around a bit. We moved a lot as a kid. Um, I went to 14 different schools in 12 years. And so, um, but then he started his own business and it was the happiest time that I saw him in, in my whole childhood was when he was controlling and when he was running and he, this, my dad would work from five thirty in the morning till 10, 11 o'clock at night. And he instilled that in us kids as well, that if you want to do it yourself, you're going to have to work twice as hard to prove you're half as good. And so that's kind of where it sort of comes from. And my dad always said, regardless of what you do, I don't care if you're a ditch digger. He never really had aspirations in a, in a lofty way. He was like, if you're a ditch digger or a doctor, make sure you're the best at it. So that's the sort of driver that from the get-go was always that that push to do the best. And it was almost like a family mantra. It's like, whatever you do, just be the best you can be at it. Um, and so I think that was where it sort of came on board because we I worked 40, 50 hours a week during school. So I'd be up at five o'clock in the morning, load a truck full of load a truck full of turf, clean my arms and legs off with a bucket with a, a bottle of water in the back of the uh, our, our car, and then go to school, come home from school, change back into my overalls, and then go do a big load and, and do my homework under a torch in the back of a truck. And so I think that I think my dad's sort of entrepreneurship, even though back then it wasn't called entrepreneurship, it was just only your own business. I think his drive to um, control his own destiny um, because he's a super talented truck driver and um, he's never even had a parking ticket. It's really odd his like completely clean record, but he always wanted to own his own business. And since then, he's he's done very well for himself. Um, but it was that initial like when I was 16, 17. Well, I started working when I was 13, but that sort of family business and, and sort of growing it. Um, and some of the stuff they did was just so crazily like groundbreaking, not not compared to these days standards, but simple things like putting flyers under people's doors instead of in their letterboxes and stuff like that. And yeah, so I think my dad's influence as an has sort of always led me to be an entrepreneur and give me my work ethic that people wonder how I achieve everything that I do every day and I still sleep seven hours a night. So it's uh, I think it's my dad's influence from the get-go that sort of led me all the way through my career. Yeah, hooking on to I sleep seven hours a week. How do you actually uh, turn up? Because you're talking about how you turn up every day. I call it turn up. How do you turn up pro? How do you turn up with the energy you need to drive your own businesses? Because yeah, you have the same challenges as a, a normal individual as well, but you also have your business on top of that. But how, how do you actually find that energy? Because as you said, passion cannot drive it. Own. What, what, what tactics do you have to, to make sure you turn up pro? Well, we, we, we sort of started chatting on Clubhouse and Clubhouse always has these sort of the rooms of like tactics of successful people and stuff like that. Um, I have a pretty much similar sort of um, schedule. I, I like to, to wake up early um, and while my family's getting ready for school, I lie in bed, I get all my emails done all my social media done because you know, you answer every comment on every post and that takes time. And so then just roll into my day. And so as long as I have 
my family at school and work and I've got my coffee, which is a, a, it would be classed as an addiction by most people. Um, and then I just roll in it. And so I sit down and for the first 15 minutes of my day, I go through my emails and I write a list of everything I need to achieve and give it a scale from one to five. So one is most important, needs to be done today. Five is stuff that can roll over to the next day. And I literally just make a list and then roll through it and roll through it. And it's not anything crazy tactics or meditation or anything like that. Um, I think being a bartender and being in the hospitality industry, you don't really have this sort of necessary time to roll out and like make these lists as much as in depth as a lot of other people, because sometimes you hit the floor and you're like busy, you know, you, you start, you shift off and you're like, Oh, it's a, it's a Friday or it's a, it's a Wednesday. It's not going to be busy. And then five o'clock hits and you've got a table of 20 walk-ins sort of deal. So I think that adaption from my experience as a bartender in the hospitality industry sort of reflects into the business side of things. Um, I have three computer screens at all times as well. So I have three computer screens with different tasks at times, so I can roll between all three tasks, whether it being video editing for my BC Spirits platform or an email for my distribution company. And so I have the three screens always sort of going. And so mine's a little bit more probably chaotic to most people's sort of way that they do everything. But every day I finish up and I know that I've achieved X, Y, Z. And so the, ne- the next day I know that I can do more. So usually I'm in the office for about, I'd say anywhere from 11 to 14 hours a day. And that's six to seven days a week. I usually try to take Sunday afternoons off. That's pretty much the only time I have off from about three thirty four o'clock on a Sunday till the, like till the evening, obviously I just work on my phone. I don't take it completely off. I don't unplug. I just do stuff on my phone. But again, it is, it is shows something you have from uh, your family as well that uh, you know that uh, it never stops. And I come out of a hospitality family as well, and uh, I didn't see anything wrong in being at work with my mom and dad. And I made homework in the back of a kitchen as well, or on the on the on the cask of a beer cask, you know, <laughs> when my dad was in the in the pub. So I, I feel quite, but I can see that it's very different from from many other people. Is again, do you see your work as? a job or do you see it as a, a passion, a, a purpose, something you're pursuing, an excellence you're trying to achieve? You know, if Michael Jordan saw playing basketball as a, a job, he would never ever got to that excellent level he got because it's again, are you stressed with it or you're enjoying it? Uh, and that's that's how I often say to people. And of course, you as long as you get your fundamentals, I think one of the fundamental things you said there was like planning is extremely important. And I think that's, a lot of people show up without a plan. And the most managers I've trained, when I trained them in, when I train managers or people that have to lead other people is, you need to be extremely organized and planning. First yourself, and then you need to learn how you organize and plan for other people so they can learn from you. And that's that's your job in general, in every aspect, especially entrepreneurs that does that miss that bit of the, the planning bit is the one that gets really into trouble because then they're doing tasks they maybe shouldn't be spending their time on. Well, and I think that's why I do my emails first thing in the morning. I flag I flag things that I need to get back to. And if I can answer emails while I'm still lying in bed, like just getting my day sort of started. And I, I talk to a lot of friends and they're like, oh yeah, I've, I'm always, I'm always uh, chasing emails and chasing this, this, and this. And I'm like, I don't think I go anywhere from a couple of days tops. Like one day, I, I think every email needs to be answered in like 24 hours. And I think going back to like entrepreneurship, I, I, I preach happiness a lot. And if you're not happy in what you're doing, um, 
then you should just change it. Then you're not in the right thing. You know, like if you're not happy in your, your relationships with your family or relationships with your partners or friends, like don't have negativity in your life. You need to be happy. And if you're doing all this for money or success or other reasons, I think that's where people really fall down very, very quickly because unless you wake up happy every morning and you're really looking forward to it and you go to bed happy every day, then I, I don't see the reason in doing it. That uh, yeah, that, that's super interesting, especially in the moment where we're living now. It's so important, I think. I know that so we have to pay the bills and get food on the table, but I think there's a lot of people that will have had these reflection. And I think I always say to people as well, what do you really get energy from? If you don't get energy from what you're doing, you need to change something because you know life is too short. You know, as you just said. What what uh what is your like uh, prediction? for our industry we're a bit hard on it in the beginning but you know is there any you know positive light because there's a lot of positive things within hospitality you said we are people alike to serve other people that's the one thing you can't take it that human element of being in service to others it's like something that's very unique around hospitality and probably that keeps a lot of us around and why we think it's so exciting also because it's so difficult to make work that's one of my things great hospitality is so difficult that's why i'm like staying staying on the ride because i just want to to solve that equation uh the impossible equation but well, what what do you think the, the the future looks and you know if you had a crystal ball and 12 18 months out i've got high hopes i think the vaccine is going to change a lot of things hopefully with these these variations and stuff we can get those under control um i've got high hopes i think people always are going to like people you know, people are always going to want to be around people and have that energy and that sort of bustling. You know, I don't think anyone's ever going to be like, you know what, I just don't want to go to the pub. You know, like I don't want to go to the pub on a Friday night and stand in the street and have a pint, you know. So I think people will like people. So we've got to watch consumer behavior a lot and see how as an industry we can adapt to what makes them comfortable. And I think it goes back to being more aware of consumer behavior. Um, is Perspex screens going to stay a thing? for the foreseeable future so that people can sit at bars and sit at tables and stuff like that. Probably is face masks going to be a thing for the next little while? Most likely, but I have high hopes. I think again, taking that time and, and as an industry, just stopping and taking a breath and really being thoughtful about the next steps we take instead of just trying to sort of slap the doors open and, and let the, the torrent come in, just really have a think about how it is because if we, we we are thoughtful and aware of how our consumers are behaving for the next 18 months, you can be very successful. I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. Um, you're going to see a lot of small restaurants that were never really doing very well shut up and the opportunity for small um, and medium size operators are going to be much bigger because there's a lot of landlords out there who are going to need landlord, going to need some rent money. So there's going to be a lot of opportunities out there for the right people. But I think the biggest thing for 2021 and 2022 is as an industry, we just need to stop and take a breath and really have a think about it. Because I think there's a lot of people who are just like, I just want to get the doors back open. I understand that, but are your guests going to want that? You got to really have a think about how it is. I've got, I've got high hopes for the the industry because I think people always want to be around people. And I think that's the real, the key. I think people are hungry to be hanging out and um, conversing with other people in, uh, a restaurant setting that's what we do you know so 
Um, there's been a couple of weekends at Clyde's where we've had a couple of four and five tops come in and you can just change the, the energy in the room just changes. And I'm like, I know that they're not from the same household and the government's sort of saying, don't do that. But the energy on that one table is just so fantastic and it just lights up the whole room. So I think as operators, we just need to watch our consumer behavior and then figure out a way that we can do what we do while still keeping people very safe and very happy. Yeah, the world and uh, business and people are changing and uh, the identity about how we do things. And that's what we need to listen out to. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, uh, don't open the doors as you close them. That's a, that's a really good message. What uh, That maybe leads into the, the, the last question I always ask the guests is like, what is your top three advice you want to give to to other leaders out there in the industry? What, what is your top three advice of what they should maybe go and change, what the kind of thing, the reflection they should have uh, as as they go through the, the, the next period here, three to six months? I think the first piece of advice is to really look back at the last 18 months and, and look back further and really get a f- solid grasp on your financials. Like we've talked about a lot of the profit and loss statements and stuff like that. Like really get a solid understanding. Um, we've cut costs, like we've got rid of linen napkins and we've done this and that to sort of cut costs. But are we really cutting costs when you're still spending 75% of that budget on paper napkins, which is worse for the environment? So like really understand every single line of your profit and loss. You should know if I if if a if you're talking to another restaurateur, you should know exactly what your break-even point is, which is sometimes a little bit more difficult to calculate because of the way our labor sort of works. We don't have fixed and we have fixed and variable labor. But I think understanding 110% exactly what your break-even point is and then figuring out exactly what your per head spend should be, how many covers you need to do, all these things so that you walk in because this foundation and this confidence in exactly knowing how your business runs is super paramount to going forward. You know, like knowing what your staff members are doing, training, that sort of thing. Um, Taking this time to train your staff even heavier to sort of push that per head spend. We've talked about per head spend during this um, is a big thing. I think auditing all your staff and making sure that you've got the, I look at it as like a baseball team. If you're going into the World Series, you want your best baseball team playing. You don't want to be like, oh, you know, such and such is just like that. That's just them. You know, like the guests may love them, but their per head spend is five to seven dollars less than the the top hitter. And so I think really understanding that financial training and, and, and staff education is a massive thing. I think we we sort of give them the baseline of what our business does, but I think it needs to be much broader in the scheme of wine training and all this sort of stuff instead of it just being about what we do, about what the industry does. Um, and number three, oof, number three, once you understand those two things, I think as operators, we need to understand that you need to have an exit strategy in the way that you can't keep working the 50 hours a week, 60, 70 hours a week that a lot of restaurant tours do. They work the door. If you can't afford to pay yourself an actual salary, a good salary, not just like the dregs, like a good salary, and that's a part of your profit and loss statement, then you actually don't have a profitable business. I, I talk to a lot of restaurant tours, have been doing it for 20 years. I'm like, well, how much do you make? He's like, well, we just take a percentage of the profits at the end of the year. I'm like, that's not how it should work. You know, because if you got sick or you like broke your leg and you'd have to replace yourself, you would have to pay someone and that comes out of your profit margin. And if 
if that's the case, then you need to sort out your prices. And there's a lot of restaurants out there that the, I've I've looked into and I've I've looked at for clients and I, I get their profit and loss statement. I'm like, how come your labor is like 7% because they're not paying themselves? And I'm like, well, that profit at the end of that isn't actually profit. That's actually in the red because you've got two people who work 50, 60 hours a week that aren't getting paid. So really, you're not $60,000 in the black. You're actually probably about $120,000 in the red. So let's be honest with it. So if you haven't built in to pay yourself and you've just bought yourself a job, then you are setting yourself up to if COVID ever hits again or something similar to COVID, this is where places shut down, you know? And so those are the three big things. And I think operators always put themselves last. They're always the the last at the family table. You know, everybody eats and then the restaurateur and the owner comes in and he's the one that, or she's the one that gets the, the last of the family meal at the end of the day because the staff are fed. And so I think that's a big step that a lot of owners need to look at because this is where the negativity and um, sort of not toxicity, but like the sort of hatred and love, this love-hate thing for restaurants comes from like, I, I love working at my restaurant, but I hate working at my restaurant, you know? So I think those three things are the really big things that I really would hope for people to focus on in 2021. Uh, that was uh, super interesting about, you know, pay yourself first um have that mentality when you develop your business it has to pay your pension as well like uh and i think that's that's again you need to think about how much money do i need in 20 years time or 15 years time whatever it is that you believe that cut point for pension because also working on the floor in a restaurant is bloody hard work and my mom was in her late 50s where they were quite successful they probably had needed 10 more years really to do well but then she got an injury in her back and that was it the carpet was pulled and she had to redefine her whole world around that and that just meant that it, it was not sold all these restaurants not sold off at the price they could have because that was not maybe thought about that because they're oh yeah that's still lots of years that's when 20 years that's 25 years to figure this out but one day that life can change. So I think that's a really good idea. And I love the thing you said about the team as well. What kind of team are you bringing back? Are you bringing back to play the the NBAs or you're playing the, the leagues on the below that? What kind of league are you going to play in when you come back? And what do you need to put in the team to play that? It's not always who you need to hire, but what do you need to put in that team and find out, do I have the right people on the team and the wrong people? Get them out of the door. Don't bring them back. Uh, set the best team, you know, always. I don't and don't and don't be satisfied with I can only get these people. That's not or else invest in those people so they become the best people. Because then it's an attitude thing you're working with more. But yeah, super interesting advice, John. Thank you so much. That was really some great conversation here, and uh, I'm sure those people out there that was like had some reflection. I'm gonna go and do something. But if they want to um, get in touch with you and uh, hear more about what you're doing or get inspired, listen to your podcast, where do they go? Um, well, I'm on all the social media platforms, literally all of them. I think I don't think I'm on Snapchat, but I'm on literally every so- social media platform. So you can hit me up. I'm always open to messages and, and that sort of thing. Um, you can go to uh, thepostshiftpodcast.com for the podcast. Um, I'm just about to post my 234th episode um this friday and so that's a, a big one i actually got to go off and do a, a live stream straight after this but um yeah postshiftpodcast.com um soulhospitality.com is my website for my business um but yeah you can hit me up on any social media platform and you'll find me
Great, great, Sean. We will put every all the things in the in the show notes so, so people can find it as well. I will send you uh, all the the power, energy, and love uh, you need to to navigate through. Hopefully, as we said, the last phase of the pandemic and uh, and good energy for for a bright future for you as well. So thank you so much for coming and sharing with the, the audience your experiences and, and views on the industry. I appreciate that, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Sean, for sharing your story, insights, and wisdom. And also sharing how to navigate the current storm and how to create a mindset that you become a more savvy operator. If you want to get more insights on how you move your mindset and change your game, visit episode 63, Setting Yourself Up for a Long-Term Mindset with Joshua Koppel, Chief Executive Officer at Flow Hospitality and the host of the Fullcom podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bizsimply.com or the social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly on advice at bizsimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlton, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. In the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the community and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of that, there will be links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and be maverick.